The Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, and welcome to the first Art Newspaper Podcast of 2018. My name's Ben Luke, and this week I'm at the London Art Fair in Islington. The fair is something of a time capsule. This is its 30th year, so it harks back to an era before Tate Modern and before the Freeze Art Fair, a time some might characterise as being dominated by fair to middling modern British art, lukewarm wine and comfortably carpeted galleries. A bit later in the podcast, I'll be talking to Georgina Adam, one of our editors at large and the author of the book Dark Side of the Boom, which we discussed on episode 13 of the podcast. She'll be gazing into her crystal ball and telling us what to expect of the art market in 2018. But now, the first of two previews of 2018 exhibitions. Next week, we'll be previewing exhibitions in the US, but this week, I'm discussing with Louisa Buck, our contemporary art correspondent, some of the key exhibitions of the first part of 2018 in the UK and Europe. Louisa, this year doesn't have any of those big headline group shows like the Venice Biennale documenter and Munster that we had last summer, that once every 10 years collision. Can you see any shows which might really capture the zeitgeist in terms of biennials and those sort of shows? Well, there's still a fair smattering of biennials because such is the nature of the art world. And I'm thinking we've got Glasgow International opening on the, in April. Um, that's doing an exhibition at the Glasgow Gallery of Modern Art called Cellular World, about how the world is shaped by technology for good or for bad, cyborgs, avatars, all sorts, big canvas commission from John Russell. There's also, um, at the same time as part of this, a a solo show by Mark Leckie, who also engages with technology and popular culture. And then along the other end of the spectrum, a rather amazing um, installation, another thing at Glasgow, by Libyana Himid, um, Suspended New Paintings. So, you know, you've got a sense here of technology. Then a couple of other biennials, which caught my eye um, taking place this year, was Manifesto 12 in Palermo, which is the kind of roving international contemporary art um, biennial, which is t- taking place in Palermo this year. And you've got this sense, it's, it, the sense of, of Palermo, of course, which has been occupied by practically every Western civilization for the last 2,000 years. So it's, it's a crossroads of Mediterranean and North Africa. And they're very much riffing on this. Um, there's 12 curators selecting, including one of the members of Rem Coolhouse's architectural practice. And they're basing, they're calling it Garden of Flows, based around the botanical gardens and the sense very much of course the botanical gardens being about migration immigration new species being introduced so there's very much a sense again of of shifting migration and 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 multiplicity of of, of culture so that's that's underpinning manifesto and the other one i'm thinking of is is liverpool biennial which is taking place in july and um this is this is asking artists and audience to reflect on a world of social and political and economic turmoil um the actual title of the the biennial this beautiful world, where are you? Which is based on some 18th century poem, um, and many commissions taking place there at Liverpool Biennial, um, and I think including Francis Alice, um, Tars Macheva, who did that beautiful tightrope um, piece at the Venice Biennale. So I think underpinning these three that I'm thinking of is a sense of an unstable, uncertain, conflicted, multifarious world, whether it be due to sort of cultural shifts or technology. So. I think, you know, more than the Venice Biennale, which I criticised last last year for being really rather sort of aloof to the real pressing needs of socio-economic political trends, this time these three seem to be really grappling with what's concerning us. It occurs to me hearing you say that, that actually uh, a sort of more apt comparison might be with documentary in the sense of those, those very broad sort of socio-political critiques which were part of that show. Do you think it's too early to tell whether any of those big shows from last year are rippling into the wider culture or, or do you think we'll be able to t- detect this year whether they, whether they are having an effect? 
I think this whole notion of sort of dystopia, which very much permeated Documenta, I, I feel sort of in my guts, um, will be will be coming through with Manifesta and indeed Glasgow with this sense of our very uneasy relationship with technology, our uneasy relationship with with global shiftings and movings and my, you know this this whole sense of, of of things really not being in any way set or certain. And I think that kind of that insecurity I think will ripple through. We haven't got specific examples of works yet, but. I do feel that, you know, it's impossible now for art to be aloof to what's going on in the world in the way that perhaps, you know, ivory towers prevailed in years gone by. So I think we're going to be seeing a lot more direct engagement. If we could move on to the exhibitions that we're most looking forward to or most intrigued by this year. I wonder if we might start at the Royal Academy. Um, The first exhibition to open there this year is uh, Charles I, King and Collector. It's one I'm particularly intrigued by because... With these kind of shows, it really is all about the quality of the loans. The premise is exciting. We know that Charles I had one of the greatest collections in history. But I think the proof of the pudding with these kind of shows, the the kind of things that turn it into uh, an unmissable show rather than just an intriguing one, is is, is the quality of the loans. And I think we've got a hint that there are some really good ones. There's a there's a major loan from the Louvre of Charles I hunting. There's a major loan from the Prado of Charles V, the Emperor Charles V. But really, you need to have stonking loan after stonking loan for this show to be really, really fantastic. Well, you do. Otherwise, it becomes a sort of curatorial treasure hunt of sort of minor works that might have been footnotes that might have been sold. And I think that's, it is really crucial. I mean, you're getting the great Mantegna's from Hampton Court. Hurrah. You know, you're going to have, I think, the fantastic, several, as far as I can gather, fantastic Rubenses and, and, and you know, Van Dyck's. I mean, I think they're really pulling out the stops to try and do this because let's not forget it's their 250th anniversary this year. It's the beginning of their year of festivities. So they want to, I think, before they start going all modern and contemporary and doing other things down the line, want to do a sort of big a big fanfare about the heritage of the Royal Academy, which, of course, wasn't around in Charles I's time, but, but the sense of having a, in, itself embedded in history. And I think it should be a really exciting show. I mean, it's nice to have some thundering old masters in those great big rooms. You mentioned that they're moving on to the contemporary, and there is a rather remarkable event happening in London relating to Tasta Dean. So Tasta Dean will have three shows at three major London venues. I think this is completely unprecedented. Tell me about that. Well, I'm very excited because she's one of my favourite artists. I mean, recently she's been working predominantly in film, but she also makes stunning drawings. She's an extraordinary conceptual artist and photography as well. And yes, it's a triumvirate. It's the National Gallery, the National Portrait Gallery and the Royal Academy are all having shows of Tacita's work. Um, The National Portrait Gallery, not surprisingly, are showing portraits, but film portraits, which is you know, the way the wonderful portraits of Mario Mertz, the artist, just gazing, David Hockney copiously smoking, um, fantastic six screen, six screen installation on, based on Merce Cunningham, um, reliving his, his lover John Cage's four minute silent piece. I mean, which has never been shown in the UK before. A whole panoply of amazing works at the National Portrait Gallery, which were really up their game too, because it's, you know, it's film and video, which is not seen so much there. Then you've got in the National Gallery, at this, almost exactly the same time, they're both open in March. You've got Tassa Dean working with Still Life. 
So that the genre, the portraiture genre, now you've got the genre of still life, where she's um, actually curating. And I often think artists make the best curators. And yeah. she's there's a long history, of course, of artists interacting with the National Gallery's collection. But she's taking works, maybe by Zerberan, maybe Old Master, Memento Mori works, juxtaposing them with contemporary works, all kinds of different riffs on still life, and intersposing with her own works, including a new piece, which I'm really looking forward to seeing, which is, which is based on a series of flints, um, um, riffing off Henry Moore's Flint collection, but there'll be much more than just sort of still life objects, because of course, you know, still life is a whole contemplation on the nature of reality, the nature of existence, and she's going to be very much, she's a very complex philosophical artist, and that will be really exciting. And then, just overlapping with, with those two, is the third genre, landscape, which is going to be at the Royal Academy, inaugurating their new galleries with their whole new building opening this, this year. And um, again, landscape is a very broad thing with Dean. There's going to be an enormous wall drawing of, of mountains there's going to be a new film similar in concept to the film she did at the Turbine Hall which actually explores the nature of film itself because she's absolutely obsessed with actually the materiality of film and the way in which in fact film in our digital age is now vanishing but, but this, this new piece is going to be very much about that it's based on an eclipse and we'll be using lots of the same techniques as in the Turbine Hall and um, you know I think it's very and her clover her four leaf clover collection so you've got a really eclectic mix at Tate Modern there's also really strong spring season I'm particularly excited about Picasso 1932 Love, Fame, Tragedy I believe is the subtitle Love, Fame, Tragedy <laughs> and this this is a rather extraordinary exhibition because in the way that you've got a very broad ranging look at Tessa Dean's work across multiple genres you've got one single year of Picasso's work being analysed in depth now I looked at the the introduction to this uh, to the catalogue for this show and in there, I read that in January of 1932, Picasso made a series of paintings, about eight paintings. And if you look at these paintings, they're paintings like The Dream, Sleep, Reading, a couple of paintings, very blocky figures in, in sitting in armchairs. These are some of the great works of Picasso's career. He made them in one month. He made enough masterpieces in that one month to satisfy a whole career. It is an extraordinary achievement. And I think one of the great things about this show is it's going to show an artist absolutely at the top of their game, but also, wonderfully, how that related to their daily existence in, the, in their private life. Well, of course, it was this was the year, 1932, where he was still married to Olga, his, his wife of many years, but he, he was also in the full throes of his affair with the much younger Mary Therese Walter. And these glorious, dreamy, sexy curvaceous paintings that he made you know it's impossible not to underpin them with his autobiography with what was going on but at the same time yes he was you know in, he was 50 year old artist he was at the top of his game he, he was gaining you know massive stardom as it were which was you know rare in those days for an artist to achieve that level of fame so you have him absolutely experimenting and then going back as you say into the blocky figures so you've got these great works and I think it's such a good idea to drill down into one year and actually be quite simple in your curatorial you know concept a very simple chronological framing, but it means you can really get inside the head of Picasso and just see what was cooking and bubbling and fermenting creatively as well as emotionally at that time and how they meshed. And I think it'll be absolutely fascinating to get this kind of insight into the working processes of Picasso in this year when he really was peaking in his, in his ability and his experimentation. A very contrasting show at Tate Modern 
in the same season is uh, Joan Jonas. You, you're particularly excited about this one. Well, I loved her pavilion, the, the American pavilion at the Venice Biennale a couple of Biennales ago. I think you know she's a pioneer of performance. She also trains as a dancer. She's one of the first people to use TV monitors in her work. But her work is magical. It's multi-layered, textured. I mean, she uses bees, poetry, projections, extraordinary lights, masks, collaborates with other people. I mean, she's 80 years old, but still often performs herself in the work. I'm not sure that she will be manifesting that much in, in the live elements of, the, of this particular show. But, I mean, it's a proper retrospective paying tribute. You know, yet again, a woman artist who's been sidelined. She was very much a contemporary of all the artists that were going on in the 1960s, but, you know, was was, was put put on the back burner as far as art history was concerned and now out in the spotlight. And I, I can't wait to see her work being shown. It's going to be tricky because, of course, you know, she is a pioneer of performance and one has to have live elements. I'm not sure quite how they're going to work in with a programme. I imagine they are but I think it's going to be a really exciting show. Um, she's a contemporary of Bruce Nauman and Bruce Nauman has a show at the Schaulager in Basel which travels eventually to Museum of Modern Art and PS1 in, in New York. Sadly, for people, for our listeners in the UK, it isn't coming to the UK so you'll have to make it over to Basel if you can. It's it's apparently the biggest retrospective for some time. Well, I think it's extraordinary that Nauman still you know, hasn't had the recognition. I mean, he is the sort of big daddy. People bang on endlessly about Marcel Duchamp and, and so on. But, you know, Bruce Nauman, for so many contemporary artists, is the, I mean, from casting the space underneath the chair, Rachel Whiteread, the neons, the performances, the films, the extraordinary sculpture, you know, this, this, this multiplicity of identity. I mean, he's a sound piece. It's one of the greatest turbine hall installations ever, I felt, yeah. with Bruce Nauman's, where it was completely empty, but of course completely filled with sound, with all these extraordinary mutterings and chantings and talkings filling the space. So he's completely crucial. And hurrah that there's going to be this big exhibition. It's called Disappearing Acts, because it actually is the, 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 the kind of underlying theme is the way in which Bruce Nauman is oddly absent. I mean, present by being absent within. He appears in a lot of his works, but there's a sense of his his physical presence being there, but his, his material presence not being there. And I think this whole playing around with, with presence and absence is going to be a very powerful element of the show. And then it goes to New York, of course, so, but sadly not to us. But I think it's, it's going to be a very exciting show. The Schaunager shows are also always beautifully curated. So I think, you know, it will be a second to none um, presentation. Now, earlier in the year in Basel, there is a retrospective of another leading figure of the late 20th century, and that's Georg Baselitz. Now, Baselitz became particularly famous at a very um, significant moment for painting in the 1980s, and that has remained the kind of most famous period of his work. This retrospective in Basel is in two parts. It's paintings and sculpture at the Bayerle Foundation, and then works on paper at the Kunstmuseum. And it seems to me that the, the, the attempt in this retrospective is to somehow create this broader idea of what Baselitz is capable of and to try and tear him away from that association with a very particular moment of great grand paintings in the 1980s. Grand paintings, grand sculptures, woodcuts, hewn, neo-expressionism, these inverted figures, the upside-down figures, thunderingly, you know, macho in a way um, and, and I think you know, it was very much part of a certain moment in the 80s of sort of breast beating neo-expressionism and I think it will be very interesting to see because I mean the, the, the earlier works from my limited so I can't wait to see more of the knowledge is that they were more refined there was actually a sense of tapping back into tra- traditions of woodcuts and traditions of, of, of draftsmanship and I think you know actually seeing a more restrained Baslitz and then seeing what's happening into the future again now since that period would also be very interesting because I mean I've got some terrible gaps now in my Baslitz knowledge so I feel like I can't wait for them to be filled. I think there's that 
sense in which he is and he, he was one of those East German born artists who, who made that leap into West German there's a famous quote where he called all East German artists arseholes and, 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 and there he was as, again you know sort of very proudly part of this West, Western German tradition and I think again that it's, it, it, he's an artist who's not associated with subtleties and, it, and, and, and I think even when you think about the, his entry into the world which, which was uh, where he was I think he and his gallerist were arrested for, for a painting of a masturbating figure in 19, in the early 1960s, you you get a sense from from Baselitz's uh, story is that we're we're dealing with quite a lot of headlines and not much uh, no, not many shades of grey around the headlines. And so again, as you say, it's like a it's it's a chance to discover this much broader uh, territory which is explored. But boy, can he handle paint! You know, I mean, he's a great great painter. I mean, you know, masturbatory stuff or stories of bad behaviour, notwithstanding, he is a really beautiful painter and actually the sculptures as well yes they've got that sort of hewn quality but also there's a sense of, of, of you know they're very considered in not the tricksy knowing way but there is a sense of you know he's a formally and materially really acute artist and I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of that hopefully foregrounded. Now I thought we'd end by talking about an artist to watch in 2018 I'm going to talk about Lydia Urachman who is showing at the Chisholm Gallery uh, next week from next week and also she's in the new museum triennial in new york um she is an algerian british artist she spends her time between london and oran in algeria and what i like about lydia is she's got an incredibly poetic way of exploring the personal and the political at the same time so her work is dominated by themes of migration so let's take for example one of the works in the chisholm show she acquired a gold chain from a market which was notorious she told me for uh, having for having stolen goods, basically. Then, so she acquired this gold chain and she exhibited it just as a chain a little while ago. But then she thought that wasn't enough. So what she's done for this show is she'd had she's had the gold chain melted down, and she has made it into two teeth. One of which is going to be inserted into her mouth, and the other is being shown at the Chisholm Gallery. Now there are two forms of significance here. She acquired the gold chain for the equivalent of about 300 euros. It so happens that 300 euros is the amount of money that a lot of Algerian people are paying to make that journey across the sea to Europe. So immediately it conjures up this the biggest issue of our time, refugees, people seeking to travel from North Africa to, to Europe. Then on the other hand, the tooth is significant because her grandfather was a fighter in the Algerian liberation movement. And he, in order to not be conscripted to the French army, took all his teeth out in order to be excused from military duty. So the tooth might, in the gallery, look like like a kind of quirky, strange, surrealist object, but it has all this wonderful kind of personal and political resonance. And this, to me, is why Lydia is such an interesting artist. She manages to find interesting ways to explore incredibly important themes. When I met her, she talked to me about tracing a stolen dog. A dog of hers had been stolen from from her family home, and she wondered what had happened to it, what it was being used for, whether it was being used as you know, a currency. It was rather a rather expensive dog, I think. You know, she was going to she was going to trace it, trace trace issues of, of displacement and movement through. That. So I think it's, I mean, the tooth is, is a fantastic departure. So I'm very intrigued by just the way in which, as you say, she goes into this sp- specific personal detail and takes it out into a raft of concerns that 
run across the globe. And she really fuses her personal biography as well. So you get this in in the sound piece that we'll feature, and it does relate to the dogs. She perceived the dog being stolen sonically, she said. She was asleep when it happened. The dog was on the roof, and she heard the dog disappearing off in a sort of half-asleep, half-awake mode. And so... The, the sound work in the show relates to that, but the sound work includes, for instance, traditional Algerian music. Um, and it also includes sort of contemporary sort of field recordings from her research. So, again, it's this way of fusing uh, cultural specificity and also very personal um, aspects of her autobiography. And I love that the deafness with which she does that. Now, the artist that I was going to single out doesn't have that sort of specificity. She's older. She's in her 40s. She's called Lin May Saeed. She's based in Berlin. She's of Iraqi Jewish background. And I spotted her extraordinary polystyrene sculptures in in um, in, in Miami at the, at the Nadra Art Fair. And there were these reliefs, um, hewn painted polystyrene reliefs featuring animals looking almost like they were a kind of um, Paleolithic chunk of wall. I mean, very peculiar. And then also sculptures on, um, on, on metal struts, again, painted polystyrene, looking quite sort of naive, but also quite timeless, quite ancient. And her work is very much about the exchange between animals and humans. There was also then, in a completely different style, a gate, a metal gate, outlining the image of a, of a, of a masked figure, just, just, with, just with the eyes showing, it's a balaclava figure, breaking out of a jail, holding, holding a pig, holding an animal, re- relieving. And so there's a sense of, sort of animal liberation, of animals being part of a myth, of part of ritual, part of ancient history, but also the sense of, again, of cross cultural movement and, and a whole notion of, of, of art sort of symbolic um, freeing from freeing from, from strictures and, and a sense of, of animals taking on a much wider kind of cultural significance. She's going to be at the Studio Voltaire in London this summer. She's doing a big special commission for them. She also does big backlit cutout, almost like freeze-like um, images of, of animals and people, again, sort of timeless, extraordinary kind of combinations. Um, humans nurturing animals, humans freeing animals. But as I want to emphasise, it's not about animal lib per se. There's a sense of it tapping into much broader histories and much broader cultural, sort of transcultural notions. So I think very visually rich, uses very low-grade materials quite often, but to great effect. Um, she's, she's shown in Europe, this is going to be her first UK major representation. So Lin May Saeed, look out. I think we've got a mouth-watering prospect ahead of us with all these shows. Louisa, thank you very much. Thank you. The current print edition of the art newspaper has a year ahead section where you can read all about exhibitions in the first half of 2018. For some time now, at the start of every year, we've asked Georgina Adam to predict what might happen in the art market in the year ahead, and her forecasts have often been uncannily accurate, so we thought we'd grab her following a talk here at the London Art Fair to see what her thoughts are at the dawn of 2018. Georgina, there's only really one place to start. And that's the fact that all records were broken with the Leonardo sale last year. How is that going to affect the art world in 2018? Well, that is, of course, the $64,000 question. In fact, the $450 million (laughs) question, actually. Because it's very difficult to tell. This was a one-off. It was the only Leonardo, perhaps not in private hands, but probably to come on the market, or likely to come on the market. It was bought by... 
the Louvre Abu Dhabi or by the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, we don't really know. What exactly were the conditions? We don't really know. There was a guarantee. We're not really sure. So the conditions were exceptional. That being said, I do think that it does engender a quantum leap in the prices that can be paid. And quite soon afterwards, we saw another huge price, 300 million, paid for a Warhol. So I think that it does, it raises the bar of the possibility of art prices. Can we talk a bit about guarantees? Because this is one of the sort of murkier aspects of the art world that, that a lot of people don't really know about and we, we think of, of auction houses as being these places that have these sale room, sales rooms in which works of art come up onto the uh, into the auction and then, and then are sold to bidders but it's not as, always as simple as that so can you explain guarantees? One of the things that people always say is that auction is a transparent process a price is established, knocked down in front of everybody, but in fact it turns out that it's not true at all. And this is because there is an increasing use of financial instruments called guarantees which are negotiated before the sale and which mean that actually when a work of art comes to auction it may well be pre-sold. Somebody has agreed to buy it at a certain price, they've got a financial inducement for it. Sometimes the auction house itself has agreed to buy it at a certain price, even if nobody else bids. More often today, what's called a third-party guarantor, i.e. somebody outside the auction house, has agreed to buy it at a certain price. If it goes over that price, then they will get a share of what's called the overage or the upside. So you don't have a level playing field anymore in an auction. One person sitting there might be bidding just with his own money, or the crown prince's money, or whoever. But somebody next door to them might be bidding, knowing of the reserve, which normally is secret, and also knowing that if they win it, they can make a bit of money. So auction is by no means the transparent process that people think it is. Because the Leonardo raised so much money in, a, in, an, in an auction setting, it wasn't done by private sale, do you think we're likely, therefore, to see more vendors putting their works into auctions but with guarantees as opposed to going for private sales, for instance? It's interesting. I've, I've thought quite hard about this because there are advantages to the private sale, which is that it's secret. And if, for example, you are divorcing your wife or you've got a family that might notice if something they've always seen on your walls or your father's walls suddenly coming up to auction, you know, that could be a problem. I do think, though, the fact that you can have these extraordinary leaps in price will be a stimulus for the auction process. But I don't think that it means that private sales will disappear by any means. What about old masters? Because uh, we've talked in, on other podcasts about how there's the problem with the old master market is, is the rarity of real gems. But obviously, again, triggered by that an extraordinary price there might well be vendors might there that, that see that price and think well now's time to let unleash my old master on the market i do think that this leonardo result will stimulate the old master market um, we for a start we will see um, a lot more leonardos what martin kemp calls non-leonardos in freeports he apparently gets offered them very very frequently about one a month uh, he says often it's the same one. 
Um, so I think everyone will obviously be looking desperately for another Leonardo, but not only that, people will be re-evaluating the old master market. But it remains problematic in the sense that authenticity is not sure, and so there is always the chance that uh, a few years down the line, uh, progress either in forensic or in scholarship could mean that what you thought was a Caravaggio actually isn't one. So that is a problem. And also, it's just a small, dark, perhaps a Christian subject, something like a crucifixion, is just not really of the taste of our time. And I think that that won't change. So, yes, there will be more interest in old masters. Uh, no, they won't suddenly overtake the contemporary market. So let's talk a bit more about the contemporary market. Obviously, one of the striking things about the Leonardo sale was that it was included in a contemporary sale. So the conviction behind that uh, decision must have been contemporary sales are sexy, contemporary sales are where the big collectors hang out, therefore it doesn't in any way undermine the contemporary market. In, In fact, it sort of reinforces its power. Yes, I agree. I think it does reinforce the fact that, that the contemporary is where the action is. It's the biggest part of the market today. And uh, I, no, I don't think that it does undermine it at all. Uh, and of course, contemporary is where the money is. And therefore, if you've got a very, very, very high-priced object like the Leonardo da Vinci, it would have looked a bit odd to have included it in, a, in, in an old master sale where the top price might have been only a million or two million or even three million or even 20 million. So it was... a a brave decision I should say or maybe even foolhardy it paid off magnificently but I think also well it does illustrate uh, what's going on in the art market overall which is this blurring of boundaries and this we're seeing in other aspects of the art market as well I mean one of the, one of the things you mentioned in your um, predictions of, for 2018 in the art newspaper is this rather extraordinary fact that a Formula One car was included in a modern art sale can you tell me a bit more about that? Yes, well, I think Sotheby's included. It was a Formula One Ferrari. It had been driven by Michael Schumacher, and it was guaranteed, and I think it made about £8 million, uh, excuse me. Uh, Yes, it was curious. And even Sotheby's was hard put to defend it, apart from the fact that they really possibly had nowhere else to put it. I mean, I suppose... For us, us analysers of markets and art history, what we're seeing here is a really visible equivocation between art and luxury goods, aren't we? This is a trend which I regret, I would say I deplore. I think it's partly stimulated by the fact that one of the two main auction houses belongs to somebody who is in the luxury goods business, François Pinault. And I think it is slightly in the zeitgeist. I think there is this this blurring of boundaries. I think that artists such as Damien Hirst, Tracy Emin, Kusama, Koons, they really are making product now for the for the luxury goods market. They are no longer really making what perhaps is to ha- today an old-fashioned description of art as something that is um, aesthetic something that's slightly groundbreaking that can be difficult. I think that unfortunately there is a tendency to churn out product. The other side of the contemporary art market, which we spoke about when we did a uh, uh, podcast on your book, The Dark Side of the Boom, was the mid-market falling, uh, lots of galleries closing, etc. Do you see that as a trend that will continue? Or do you think there will continue to be problems in that, in that 
sector? I think this is a really major problem. I was just looking at the list of the number of galleries that close and virtually every week brings us news of another gallery that closes, of the mid-level galleries. I think that there is a whole structural problem. I think that mid-market galleries are going to have to find new solutions. There are some coming up. There's something called Condo On at the moment in London, which is quite successful. Um, There's Roberta, which is a sort of collective... I think that the mid-level galleries are going to have to look for other ways of doing business because I think this trend is going to accelerate and I think it is sad. Now, every year we always see this this extraordinary success of the contemporary art market in in particular, but the art art market in general, and we think surely this bubble is going to burst. Is 2018 going to be the year, Georgina? I don't think so. I think what we will see, we will see, it's a bit like a glass of champagne. You have bubbles that rise to the top and burst, so you might get a school or a certain artist. But I think that uh, at the moment, the contemporary art market is so buoyed by all of the other initiatives. For example, uh, putting art to sell, using art to sell real estate, putting art in luxury hotels. Look, uh, Miami that big Damien Hirst uh, skeleton, the gilded skeleton of a mammoth that's put at the Faina Hotel. This is is a plus. So I I think that the contemporary art sector will continue strong, not eternally, because I don't believe that trees can grow as high as the sky, but I don't think it's in danger soon. I guess one of the things that will continue to keep the market buoyant is the fact that the, the tax reforms in the US, which means that the rich are keeping their wealth and getting, in fact getting richer. Yes, I, I'm convinced that the tax reforms is probably not the word. I think changes might be a better word to use. I think that that is actually going to, it's going to make the rich richer. And of course the fact that the Dow Jones is so high, you know, people feel they will buy art when they feel comfortable. They feel that they've got money that they can spend. They feel confident. So I think at the moment... Now, the ending of 1031s, which is the, um, the tax... It's not exactly a tax break, but you can defer your um, capital gains tax on the purchase of art in America as long as you buy something that is similar. It's called a like-kind exchange. That is apparently being eliminated, and this could possibly have an impact. But I actually don't think that, that uh, in America that billionaires are going to stop buying art. Georgina, thank you so much. Georgina Adams' new book, Dark Side of the Boom, is out now, published by Lund Humphreys. And you can read her 2018 predictions online at theartnewspaper.com. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, and if you have a moment, post a rating or review. You can also let us know what you think on Twitter or Facebook at The Art Newspaper, and follow us on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. See you next week.